Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City and coming to you from the um, nation's capital area. We have my longtime friend, New York Times columnist, multiple Pulitzer Prize winner, Tom Friedman. How are you today, Tom? Great, David. Great to be with you. Uh, Well, I'm glad you could join us for this. As you may know, once a week we uh, bring in uh, somebody who we think is interesting and is luminary and is interesting to our audience, uh, which consists primarily of people who are interested in foreign policy, national security. And uh, so we'll let them pose some questions. And if you're there listing, all you have to do is pose the question in the Q&A part of the thing. And I'll pick them up and pose them. But of course, I've got a few questions to begin with. And you know, Tom, I was thinking about it because I thought, well, I could ask you about your most recent column, which I thought was really good about Putin as our um, as, 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 as a, uh, an ex that we don't quite know what to do with. Um, but you know, I thought it would be a waste because you have one of the best big picture minds out there. And we tend to get into the weeds. By we, I mean all of America these days, right? So, you know, if we're being very strategic, we'll look a month ahead. Uh, We tend not to look, you know, further than that. Um, But I was thinking, because I've known you now since the beginning of the Clinton administration, seven presidential election cycles ago. And, you know, I remember where we were then. The Soviet Union had just ended. The World Wide Web was two years old. Um, China was just recovering from the the aftershocks of Tiananmen Square. Um, The United States was being viewed as the last superpower standing. Um, there was a kind of a euphoria in the air. The French were calling us a, a, a heaper power, you know. There was nobody to challenge us. And it was a real period of upside. You know, uh, Francis Fukuyama wrote The End of History. And here we are almost 30 years later. And I would say that almost all those feelings seem to have been inverted. Um, but I thought I'd start by asking... You know, looking at that period, what do you, what do you, where, what's your feeling about this moment, uh, particularly in juxtaposition to that one? Well, David, um, I've been thinking a lot lately about um, a book I wrote back in 1999, right at the heart of that period, frankly, um, uh, coming out of it, uh, called Alexis and the Olive Tree. And um, uh, you know, I've been blessed. I've written seven books, but I, uh, I think when they, you know, lay me to rest one day, um, I, I believe that book will have 
been the one that actually um, I'll be most proud of. Um, and, um, and let me tell you why I think it's relevant because you, you alluded to it in your question. So we were there for the end of the Cold War. I was actually in Berlin with Jim Baker, you know, shortly after the wall came down. And at the end of the Cold War, um, uh, a lot of people took a stab at answering the question, what is the system that'll replace the Cold War system? After all, the Cold War, it was really a system, that bipolar world, a system in the sense that it shaped more things in more places than anything else. And um, uh, Frank Fukuyama uh, argued it would be the end of history, the triumph of free markets and, and free ideas. And um, I'm, a, I'm a huge Frank fan, um, but uh, at best you could say Frank was premature. <laughs> um, uh, it, it didn't work out that way. Um, uh, Sam Huntington then stepped up to the plate and he said, it's gonna be actually a clash of civilizations. Actually what we've seen David is more a clash within civilizations, Shiites versus Sunnis in the world of Islam, for instance. Um, Bass versus Catalans in Spain, or um, wow, Brexit, Europeans versus Europeans. So it actually has not been a clash of civilizations. Um, uh, another big hitter was was uh, someone I'm whose work I hugely respect, Robert Kaplan. And Bob argued it would be actually the coming anarchy. You know, the two superpowers, world is over. We're going to have a coming anarchy. Um, um, and others in different forms sort of argued for a, a kind of unipolar. American moment, you know, the uh, American hyperpower, as, as you uh, argued, uh, as you referred to. Um, I actually argued it was going to be something else, um, that it was going to be uh, this thing we call the, the Lexus and the olive tree, that it was going to be an interaction between what is really old, our olive tree urges, our quest for solidarity through language, faith, sect, tribe, region, nation state, things that are really old and timeless that in some ways the Cold War had suppressed, that, they would, that these would be emerging in a world defined by something very new, this new globalization system that was weaving to the world together through markets, telecommunications and information systems at a speed, scope and scale we'd never seen before. And that it would be the interaction between this really old thing and this really new thing that would really shape international relations. So, Vladimir Putin would seize Crimea. His olive tree urges, you know, would, would seize Crimea, but he wouldn't go to Kiev. Why wouldn't he go to Kiev? Because the globalization system and the economic and other pressures of it would weigh down on him. And I would argue that that, that, that framework, I, I think um, uh, is still valid. Um, and there was something else I defined in that book and it was 1999. Um, uh, I said that in this new globalized world, small groups and individuals would become super empowered. And I coined the term the super empowered angry man. And my model for it was a guy named Osama bin Laden. Um, and that was in 99. And the reason I chose bin Laden, because, and you were there for this, after the bombing of our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, Bill Clinton fired 72 cruise missiles at bin Laden in his base in Afghanistan. And when he did that, I said, wow, we just fired 72 cruise missiles at a person. That was the first war in history, I believe, between a superpower and a super empowered angry man. And I called 9-11 basically just the retaliation of the super empowered angry man versus a superpower. So I, I still uh, believe that framework um, is still standing at least. And I see now, and I think we all see these super empowered 
groups and movements, how small movements now um, can get super empowered and, and really um, interact with, with uh, states and with markets. So, so I think that framework, which is what I was thinking about then, I come to think about it even more now today. Well, the, the framework applies to the United States too. Um, and, you know, I think that's what you're getting at a moment ago, because, you know, we, we have Sunnis and Shiites now, right. That's right. We, we are, we're a tribal society and on the fringe of that society, but playing a bigger and bigger role are these super empowered, uh, angry men, um, typically men, but, but, you know, it, they're super empowered because, once upon a time, they were isolated. They'd sit at the end of the bar and nobody would talk at them. And now they go on the web and they find 10,000 people who are just as crazy as they are. And all of a sudden they think they're normal and they, they're able to, to produce, you know, the unthinkable as an assault on, 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 on the Capitol. And the question is, how do, you know, d- d- when, we, when you looked at this, you know, I mean, I, when I read the Lexus and the Olive Tree, I guess... I don't know, you know, maybe I'm just one of those American suburban kids that grows up believing in happy endings, but I was kind of thinking, well, you know, the Lexus is going to win this ultimately, ultimately, ultimately the connected uplifting forces of technology are going to triumph. But one of the things we found, and I think one of the big differences between now and I, you, you, you were on it in the book, but between now and 1999, is that we realize that is as empowering and as connecting technology is, it also can be dividing and destabilizing. It can promote inequality as much as it can promote equality. How do you reconcile those things? Yeah, well, you know, um, I, I get accused of many things. One of them is, you know, you're the prophet of globalization and that it was all supposed to be good and beautiful and whatnot. And, um, you know, if you read Lexus and the Olive Tree and you read World is Flat, they both talked about the huge downsides of this because I was always aware that this system has upsides and downsides. It can be incredibly democratizing and incredibly authoritarian. It can be incredibly particularizing and incredibly homogenizing. So it's all about what values you bring to the system. And um, I think that one of the things, I'm still working this out in, in my own thinking, David, is that, um, so again, going back to Lexus and the Olive Tree, I, I um, uh, in that book, for the first time, I, for myself, defined this thing called cyberspace. Because that book came out in 99, I was writing it in 98. Netscape only went public in 95, so, which really gave birth to the sort of internet World Wide Web as we know it, the Netscape browser. Um, and so uh, I defined this thing called cyberspace. And I defined it as a place where we're all connected, but no one's in charge. We're all connected, but no one's in charge. Now, when I wrote that in 98, 99, the only sort of aberrant thing going on out there, well, there was some gambling and some porn, but there was this guy named Be- 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 Bezos and um, he was selling books out there in cyberspace uh, named a company after a river in Brazil, and he wasn't paying sales tax. So that was like the, God, Jeff Bezos isn't paying state sales tax, you know. Well, now fast forward um, 20 years later, and now this place called Cyberspace has its own currency. It's called Bitcoin. Has its own information platform called Facebook and many, many others. 
and has its own encrypted telecommunication systems outside the grip of government called Telegram Signal. Um, and suddenly this place where we're all connected and no one's in charge has become a very dangerous, frightening place. Now, if you step back, David, you see that some really important decisions were and were not taken over the last 20 years in relation to this new realm. So I would say there were three approaches to the new realm. One said it'll be governed by the party, one said it'll be governed by the company, and one said it'll be governed by the government, okay? So China looked at cyberspace and said, no, 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 Mr. Rothkopf. There will be no place where we're all connected and no one's in charge. The party is in charge terrestrially, and it will be in charge in cyberspace. There will be no alternative currency there. There will be no alternative information system there where you can be anonymous. No one in China is allowed to be anonymous on Weibo, their, um, uh, their Twitter, and there'll be no um, uh, encrypt, in, encrypted apps out there. So China said what, what the party controls and the way it controls things in the terrestrial world, it will do so in cyberspace. What we in America, in many places um, in the West, um, what happened was basically, um, we got besotted with the uh, tech entrepreneurs who are all libertarians. And they knew that if no one was in charge, that is if no government was in charge, it would mean they were in charge, that the companies would be in charge and their rules and their priorities would govern cyberspace. And those would be largely libertarian. That's basically what happened. So think about it. We created a whole realm and we said, China said the party will in charge. We by default, I wish I could say it was by design. It was really by default said, oh, we'll let the companies be in charge. You know, And um, that's how we got to the point where we are today where we go with a begging bowl to Mark Zuckerberg and say, please, please Mark, please, please shut down anti-vaccine sites. Please don't sell ads off those. Would it, be, would it be so bad, good sir, if you did that? Okay. So that's where we find ourselves today um, because not only did we by default let the companies govern cyberspace, but then we went, as I don't have to tell you, David, into complete political gridlock. So even if we had wanted to bring governance there, the two parties couldn't agree through, to it. Now there's a third model out there. It's been emerging for a while. It's called the European model. It's driven partly by jealousy, but partly by it and sort of resentment of American companies dominated them, but partly by good, honest democratic values. And today, I believe the Europeans, maybe in alliance with Apple and Tim Cook, may be the ones who save, bring democracy and democratic rules to the internet, each for their own reasons. Cook, because he hates Facebook and what it's doing in terms of privacy. Um, and the Europeans, again, out of a little bit of competitive jealousy, but also I want to give them credit for bringing real values to this, are basically saying, we are not going to defer our privacy rights, our free speech rights, our democratic norms uh, to the default of what Mark Zuckerberg um, or YouTube or anybody else decides is in their interest. So what's going on right now in the EU with their struggle with these big tech companies has huge implications, I think, for the future of democracy in the world. Well, it's interesting. Um, um, you know, back a little bit after that time, I wrote a book called 
um, Power Inc. And the, it was essentially a follow-up to the Fukuyama thesis. And it said, you know, capitalism versus communism may be resolved, but we face a new struggle and it's between different forms of capitalism and that we have Anglo-US capitalism and that we have capitalism with Chinese characteristics and we have sort of small state capitalism like you might find in Chile or Israel or the UAE. And then you've got sort of big populist state capitalism, sort of Brazil and, and India. Um, but the, the fifth kind was European, particularly Northern European capitalism yeah. that had a big social safety net, but also had balanced budgets that had a sense that, you know, the state had a big role to play, but also had companies that were thriving and adapting. And, you know, as much as it seems like the Europeans may save democracy, it also seems like they may save capitalism. And well, you know, I, I think that, and I always loved that point of yours about competing capitalisms that in, in um, uh, and, and in many ways that is more than the clash of civilizations, we've had the clash of competing capitalisms, you know, right. in a lot of ways when you think about it. So um, I think you raised a really important point. I love, I wrote a column about this during the campaign because Bernie Sanders was always talking about the Danish model. Um, and um, uh, it always used to annoy me because I, I know a lot about the Danish model. I, I was invited a couple of years ago by the Danish cabinet actually to address them. They have a, uh, this a disruption council. And I got to spend a you know, whole day with the whole cabinet and the whole sort of ruling coalition there it was fascinating. And of course, what you realize is the Danish model um, Bernie thinks it's like democratic socialism. It's anything but that. Um, it's actually radical capitalism, hyper-capitalism, hyper-globalized companies. But, the, but the, the beauty of it, the genius of it is actually that the public-private partnerships. That is what Denmark said is, is go out, let's be as global as possible, let's be as capital as possible but we're gonna build a complex adaptive coalition here at home that will bring business, labor, social entrepreneurs, government educators and philanthropists together in a coalition. So we get the best out of this system and cushion the worst. The genius of Denmark is not its safety net. It's that complex adaptive coalition that gets the best out of capitalism and globalization and cushions the worst. And that's why I did a column that maybe Joe Biden is the real Scandinavian in this race, because actually he may be the guy who can best bring that coalition together in America. And, and you know, it, it may be right. I think a lot of people are surprised by the degree to which his initial instincts have been quite as progressive yeah. as they've been. Um, we've got a couple of questions and I'm going to pose one more to you and then I'm going to turn and, and I'll... I'll relay some of these audience questions to you. But, you know, when, when I was thinking about Scandinavian capitalism, one of the other things I was thinking about was that if you have a social safety net, it can actually make you a better capitalist. Um, and the example I've always used is that when we had the financial crisis in 2008, two auto companies were on the rocks. One of them, GM, was in a country in which if it went out of work, there'd be a million people who placed out of work. The other, Saab, was in a country where um, in Sweden, everybody knew they'd be retrained. Well, what happened? The United States had to bail out GM. 
The Swedes let Saab fail. The Swedes let the market do its thing. And we always go, oh, those socialists, they don't yeah. know anything about markets. But actually, they let the market do its thing. And in the United States, we couldn't because we just didn't prepare. We didn't yeah. have the social safety net. That's an interesting point. Um, now, you know, I just before I turn turn to the questions, you know, we 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 do seem to be at a moment where there's a need to adapt and a need to address some new systems, um, a need to address this technological change, a need to address the dysfunction in our own democracy. And, and, and I don't recall our political system ever having been quite as this dysfunctional. You know, what, it, it, do we have the tools we need and the, and the political will to figure this stuff out? Because the, the Republican Party right now is, is sort of placed itself as the obstructionist party. Uh, and I read a bunch of columns of yours that have been very well intentioned about, you know, let's try to find some common ground. They, they, they you know, bef before Democrats can even respond, they're shoveling dirt on that. How, what, 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 what is, what's your prognosis given this situation? Well, you know, I mean, I've been writing this down for four years. I mean, it's, it's been clear to me ever since Trump came in that the Republican Party um, uh, has really jumped the track. Uh, it is, it's not a, a governing party anymore. Um, and when you have a two-party system that um, uh, requires compromise between the two parties and, um, uh, and you have a Republican Party today where two-thirds of the House members voted um, to decertify the election of Joe Biden. Um, and where you have these um, QAnon types now in the, in the uh, uh, actual House caucus, it means we don't have what we desperately need in this country, which is a healthy conservative party. Um, you can look, there's just no symmetry anymore. You look at the Democratic Party and you can say it's about 85, 15, I would say center left, you know, farther left, you know. Um, but they chose the moderate, they, they chose the center left guy, overwhelmingly, Joe Biden. Well, the Republican Party is about 95, five, you know, or 90, 10, Trump um, uh, and say traditional Republicans. And so um, that's just a huge problem. And we see it play out every day and it's going to continue to play out. The, the Republican Party lost its way. Um, it actually became a giant political brothel um, around the time of Sarah Palin. That is, it began to um, rent itself out by the night to whoever would energize its base. Sarah Palin, then the Tea Party, and ultimately Trump. And in the end, Trump, the John, just took over the whole whorehouse. And now he's telling them, you all work for me now. Uh, and you know, Mitch McConnell and these others are out there you know, trying to figure out how to manage this. And they, they really don't know how. They have to really start over. They need a, I think the healthiest thing for America is that that party be in opposition, out of power for a long time, where it really, and this has to happen to parties sometimes, where it really comes to terms with developing a conservative model for a multi-ethnic you know, America that is a, a minority majority country. That's clearly what is needed. Not continuing to rely on um, uh, activating a white evangelical Christian base and trying to win uh, through minority rule. Until that party makes that transition, 
um, I, I think they're going to not only be not effective partners, but um, it will drag down American politics. We need two healthy parties. We have a healthy center left party right now. Um, it needs a healthy center right party. And, um, uh, and, and I don't know, it's going to be a while before we get it. The, the real question I'm pondering, David, is that, you know, what, th there is something that's happened. Um, uh, and, and it's happened over the last decade and, and, and more um, that has to do with the interaction between these new information systems like Facebook uh, and Twitter, whatnot, um, uh, as you alluded to, with with smaller groups connecting people out there. So that there was that overlay of that, that all these people could get connected. But there was an underlay, a real rapid acceleration in three areas. A lot of Americans over the last 15, 20 years, they went to the grocery store and the, the woman at the cash register was not wearing a baseball cap. Uh, then they went into the men's room if they're a man and the, 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 there was a woman next to them at, at, and she seemed to have a penis. Then they went to the office and, and their, their boss had rolled a robot up next to their desk and it seemed to be studying their job. And it all happened at the same time. People's sense of home, their sense of social mores and norms and their sense of work all got destabilized at the same time. That happened on one track and on the other track, Facebook and these other systems began to connect a lot of these people feeling destabilized. And somewhere in there, a chemical reaction happened that really produced this kaboom um, that, uh, that we're living with now of conspiracy theories. Look, the craziest, the scariest thing about the Capitol takeover is those people believed it. I wish I could say they're all just cynical fakers. They, they believed it. We have people marinated today in conspiracy theories. So we have to work on two tracks. We have to deal with the, the challenge of a, of a deeply, a rapidly accelerating transforming society and these information systems. And until we get our arms around those, and this is a decade long project, we're gonna be wrestling with this problem. I'll come to those in a second. I should observe that as we're recording this, which is on a Wednesday, even right now, the Republicans are meeting to determine what to do about Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. Right. And their first uh, instinct is to defend her, to protect her, to minimize her racism, anti-Semitism, conspiracy theories, and so forth. And it led somebody to say to me in a conversation earlier today that you know, she was going to be the, the future of the Republican Party. And I said, you know, um, she's the future of the Republican Party, like the sidewalk is the future of somebody who jumps off a building. You know, this, this, is not a, this is not a winning formula for them, uh, particularly because of the demographic change you talked about. Let me pose a couple of the questions that we've gotten here. One is related to what you just said, which was, do you see any way out of the two distinct information bubbles in which the United States finds itself? Uh, yeah, there's no question that um, uh, to me, Facebook's business model is our problem. Um, and uh, you know, if you read a wonderful piece by Shoshana Zuboff in the New York Times last Sunday, she really 
got into this question of surveillance capitalism and that um, we have to um, basically create a world where Facebook cannot take our private data, turn it into psychographics, and not only give it over to um, uh, advertising com companies that think I, you know, I need a mustache clipper, um, but uh, to political parties that can micro-target me either to suppress my vote, um, enrage me, or, um, uh, you know, or, or get me to vote for their candidate. Um, we've just seen too much how, how dangerous this is. Facebook was the platform for anti-vaxxers to organize in Los Angeles to literally interfere with the vaccination of people for COVID-19. That is outrageous. And so I don't know what the exact solution is, but it's gonna be some kind of digital bill of rights that goes right at Facebook's business model. What about, you know, I, I, it, it's a virtual certainty that we're gonna get into uh, antitrust legislation and we're gonna get into rethinking some of the, the in the rights and also sort of immunities that these companies have uh, that date back to the telecom bill in the late 90s. Um, Republicans will scream, no doubt, that this you know, antitrust is anti-market, um, but yet they also have issues with you know, Twitter you know, turning our disgraced former president off the medium um, and they, the, the power of these high-tech companies. Um, do, do you see a, a, a potentially a, a potential for a bipartisan reckoning with these companies? Well, that's why I'm counting on the Europeans really to, to get that ball rolling. I, I don't know that it will be bipartisan. Um, uh, look, David, I, I've been, I joined the New York Times in 1981, my 40th year. So I've worked for an organization that for much of my time there was printed on a dead tree. And, um, uh, you know, on one side of the dead tree was someone called a regulator who says that if David Rothkopf wants to run an ad on our dead, this dead tree, it has to identify who he is. On the other side was an editor that says, if I spell David's last name wrong, I have to correct it on the dead tree, okay? So we had regulators and, and editors. Now, on top of the dead tree, we had people called uh, readers and people called advertisers, okay? Then along came Facebook. And Facebook said, no, 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 no. We are not a dead tree. We are, we, are, we are a platform. We're not interested in any of your regulators or any of your editors, but we want all of your readers and all of your advertisers. We didn't know what to do. And by the way, they said, we are, we're kind of cool. We, uh, we, you know, we, we move fast and break things. And, um, and so what they said to us was, trust us trust us and we trusted them and they completely screwed us over. Um, literally a week doesn't go by where Mark Zuckerberg doesn't say, God, I don't know how that got there or what's that doing there or, you know. Um, and so I don't know, there's a bunch of bills in Congress that get at this. I don't know which one is the right one, but one of them has got to get at this uh, because this is a problem. I don't think breakup is the issue. Um, uh, because um, uh, I, I, it's, it's not their size that bothers me. Uh, Shoshana made this point in her column. You know, um, uh, it's, it's the business model. I don't want eight different versions of Facebook. 
I want a different business model, you know, and uh, I mean, their size is an issue, I realize, and that's not insignificant, but um, their business model of vacuuming up your data and then um, running psychographics on it that can then be sold to advertisers or politicians, uh, I think is a model that is inconsistent with a healthy democracy. So picking up on, on, on a couple of themes that we've, we've been talking about here, um, you know, at, at, at one point in the 19th century, the UK was the greatest empire in the world. And at one point, the French wanted to be like that. And the Germans had a colonial empire. The Spaniards had a colonial empire. The, um, the Swedes sought to dominate the Baltic. You know, all these countries sought at one point or another to be the most powerful nation in the known world. And a couple of world wars came and went. And now none of them think that's what's going to be in their future. And they've shifted their focus from being the most powerful nation on earth to actually governing their nation well and providing for their people in the best way that they can. And Lord knows they're making big mistakes. You know, all you have to do is look at the UK, um, which continues to seem to be compelled to shrink. But, but we still have this impulse to get involved everywhere. You know, there's a coup in Myanmar. And the first thing you say, well, what should we do about it? We're the only country in the world where somebody walks into a room, no matter what happens. And somebody says, what should we do about it? What are you going to do about it? Or, or what are you going to do? But in every other country in the world, the question is, should we do something about it? And, and, and the question is, is part of the problem for the United States, our perception that we are, we need to be number one? Um, well, I, I'm more sympathetic to that perception, not, not so much that we need to be number one, it's that um, if we are not playing a dominant role in ordering the world, um, I don't think it'll be ordered by China. I don't think anyone wants that. I don't think it'll be ordered by Russia, that's for sure. I think it'll be ordered by no one at all. And that will be, a, I think, a world that is less prosperous for everybody, uh, particularly us and certainly less stable. So um, America, when it's at its best, um, uh, as we were not always, but sometimes uh, since World War II, um, uh, can still play that ordering role. What, what did we miss during COVID-19? What was the role America traditionally played that it didn't play under Trump? Well, when there was a global crisis like that, we did three things. One is we, we galvanized a coalition to coordinate the effort to combat it, number one. Uh, two, we um, offered scientific, um, strategic, you know, planning for that. We had the best scientists or strategic thinkers of how to confront it. And lastly, we actually provided physical material, aid and comfort to others. We didn't do any of those things in this pandemic. We actually confused the world with Lysol. We dropped out of the World Health Organization and um, we did give some people ventilators, but that, that was about it. And, um, and I think that has helped to prolong or exacerbate, you know, this, um, uh, you know, this crisis. So I, 
I'm a fan of America at its best, you know, taking that kind of leadership role. And I, I'm a fan of it, not out of jingoism or hubris, because I think it'll make for a safer, more prosperous world for my kids. And if we don't do it, nobody will. Well, I guess that's the question. What happens if we don't? Because the reality is this, and this is, you know, a little uncomfortable for people of either political party to swallow. Um, since the turn of the century, we've had the foreign policy catastrophe of George, a, uh, George W. Bush, the worst foreign policy catastrophe in, in, in memory for the U.S. We then followed that with the Barack Obama, who, who inherited a crisis, had to deal with the crisis, had no foreign policy background, and essentially was comfortable sort of, you know, he said, don't do stupid shit. He sort of stayed out. He retreated a little bit. And, and, and he didn't, you know, there was not the U.S. that stuck its neck out. And while that was, you know, good in some respects, it was further retreat. And then you had Trump, who was egregiously flawed in many ways, but essentially threw all of 75 years of foreign policy into the, the trash bin and said he wanted a gated community U.S. He just wanted to wall us off from the rest of the world. We weren't going to do it. So we've been doing this badly for 21 years now. You know, we're, we're not, you know, that nobody in the world has confidence that a Democrat or a Republican is actually going to be able to get this right. Now, Joe Biden, I think tomorrow is going to give his first big foreign policy speech. Is it fixable? We're not going to play the preeminent role that we played in the 50s and 60s because we don't have the preeminent dominance we had back in the 50s and 60s. So we're going to have to be much more of a catalyzer um, uh, than, you know, um, someone instructing others. Uh, and, uh, but I still think the world longs for us to play that role, most of the world. Um, and uh, and I, I hope that Biden, because he, he's, he's approached the world, um, he's approached the job with enormous humility. He's someone who, who understood something Nelson Mandela understood that that sometimes leadership is about making yourself small so others can act big, you know? And, you know, Biden has really done that. He's actually made himself small so other people can act big. He's, 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 he's such an adult. He's been around for 47 years. He's reached the pinnacle for himself politically. And he's very comfortable in his own skin, you know, in, in that sense. And um, uh, I, I really felt, and he's also someone who's simply impossible to hate. I mean, you know, Fox News, they do their best. They say he's old and doddering and senile, you know, they, they, but, but they, they, the venom they had for Hillary or, or Obama, they clearly can't, can't muster. And so I think the good Lord has sent us the right man at, at the right time. But I, I, and I think you'll hear from him tomorrow. I don't know, I haven't been briefed on the speech at all, but, but that kind of role that we still can be the catalyzer, we can do it with humility. But the world needs an organizer, I think now more than ever. And, um, uh, and I think he, he Tony Blinken, I, I think it's a good team. Um, I think they're well suited for it. And I think they will be welcomed after the chaos, um, the sort of malign chaos of the last four years. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I actually remember once you and I were having lunch and it was a while back 
and we were at a place called BLT Steakhouse, which was is next to where the Times offices are. And we, you and I walked out and walked directly into Joe Biden. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, there was a kind of a lively conversation there. But the thing that struck me was that for such a creature of Washington, he was able to manifest what appeared to be genuine humility. And humility has not been a quality of American presidents or leaders for a long, long time. And, uh, and I had an interesting experience, if I could say, the yeah. reason we bumped into or you know, we, we had the conversation is in part because um, I actually went to Afghanistan with Joe um, uh, right after 9-11 for almost two weeks. Um, uh, he was then chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And um, I traveled with him and uh, uh, Panit Talwar and, and uh, his media guy, four, just four of us. And we went to Pakistan, Afghanistan, Bahrain, I forgot, somewhere else. And I spent two weeks with him on the road. And it was very, really a bonding experience. And I interviewed him uh, during the um, transition between his election and taking over. And um, for anyone who doubts his mind, he recalled stuff from that trip that, I mean, we were having a good laugh because we got stuck in Afghanistan and he had to call Colin Powell to get us a plane. And, um, uh, but it was, uh, uh, I, I have a lot of affection for him. Um, he's a real person. I think people, people sense that. Well, he certainly seems to be off to a good start. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's only two weeks. It's far too early to judge, but uh, he's managed to, get a team in place, get a good team in place, deal with a hostile Republican Congress, um, put out 40 plus executive orders, undo a lot of the Trump stuff, uh, get the ball rolling towards a substantial COVID release package, get a new COVID team in place. Um, you know, it's two weeks. We, yeah. you know, we, we, we've gone for four years with less than that getting done. And um and it just, it does seem like, you know, the right horse for the course. But of course, the hard part is what lies ahead. Yeah, the course will change. And, you know, I think he's going to get lucky in that once the vaccine is out and God willing, it will deal with these variations and whatnot. And um, uh, there's so much pent up. My wife came to me yesterday, who you, you know, and, um, uh, and said, when this is over, I'm going on the biggest shopping spree I've ever done in my life. <laughs> okay. She said, I'm just telling you. <laughs> so, uh, and so like, I, I just which, think. Which I might say, by the way, sounds a little out of character. So, right, exactly. It's actually not her. That's why I say it was just like, um, but it's, uh, I just think he's going to get, hopefully, David, he's going to get lucky in that the economy will boom, you know, kind of the second half of this year into 2022. And, um, uh, and maybe that will enable him to hold the House. I think it is very important. The Republicans need a timeout. They need, a, they need to be out of power uh, to really confront who they are. And uh, I would love to see four years of a Democratic president, House and Senate, not because I'm some radical liberal, as you know, I'm, I'm not. I mean, I'm a, I'm a rare creature, a pro-business Democrat. You know, there's like three of those left in the zoo. And, um, uh, but I really think for that good of the country, um, we need a reborn Republican party. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I don't know what it will take, but, um, but it, will, it will take that. 
Well, you know, I could go on asking questions like this all for a long time. That you and I have a long history of long conversations. You sure but, do. But let me, let me, let me, let me sort of wrap it up with one question that somebody asked me to ask you, um, and it calls you know little prognostication, but that's one of your strong suits. How do you think COVID has changed us? How do you think we're going to come out of? Because because this is you know we we're a year into this. It's going to take eighteen months. I think it's been a psychological trauma for the country that we don't really quite fully have our arms around yeah. yet. Um, it's changed the way that we do business. It's changed the way we do science. It's changed the way the government works. It's changed how people view healthcare. But what do you think's going to last? What, what you know? What do you think the the long term consequences of this are going to be um, for the way you know our country works? Um, it's hard to predict because I think the main thing that's going to come out of it, David, is um, uh, massive creative destruction. Because what going into this um, health crisis, if you talk to people like McKinsey, they tell you, you know, about 20% of American companies were digitized, had gone through the sort of digital transformation from analog to digital. Um, coming out of this, uh, not only so many more are, but so many more will be. I love to give the example of our favorite Lebanese restaurant here in Bethesda, Bacchus. We've been going to Bacchus for 30 years. I love those guys, you know. And so with the pandemic, of course, um, we wanted to give them business to take out business to help them through. So the first time I called there, I think I just called on the phone and ordered. Then they finally got their website together, but frankly, it's pretty crude. Well, I ordered from Bacchus last Saturday night. I go to the website. It says, here's your last three orders. Um, do you just want to repeat that? We've got your credit card. It was basically Amazon Prime for Lebanese food with one click. Now, that's a little Lebanese restaurant in Bethesda. Now, David, scale that through the whole economy, okay? Because that's what's going to happen. It's already happening. It's going to happen even more now. And... Um, uh, I, I believe it will change everything. Uh, I have not, think about this. We've been putting out the New York Times for almost a year now and no one's been in the paper at all. Yeah, we put out this massive project, a product, you know, um, for a year. I haven't filed an expense report. In fact, the New York Times got a great deal. I haven't paid the electricity for my computer now. Okay, I mean, so like, I have not filed a taxi receipt. In fact, they, they're giving their earnings today. I'm sure they're great. Yeah, they must be. Uh, and, uh, and, and they've exploded in the great way of the, of the things they're doing now. So as everything gets digitized, David, and we get all these new hybrid models, I think that coming out of this is going to be one of the most amazing eras of creative destruction that the world has ever seen. I think we're in the middle of it now, and I think it's only going to accelerate. Well, of course, the best proof of that is that we, the tiniest media company in the world, who now have, we're just around passing our 10 millionth download. Um, uh, and, and in the course of a year, we've gotten to the point where I can do a conversation with you. We can do the whole thing in video, same quality video that you're getting on MSNBC. Yep. We can go, we can put it out there to the entire planet Earth. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 
it would have it, it all would have cost millions and millions of dollars before right. and now there's this pl- now of course you know the downside is you know Bacchus probably has its own podcast at this point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Lebanese cooking. Yeah, right. But 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 you know, having said that, you know, it's all part of this creative destruction, and I I do think that's the right way to look yeah. at it because you know people always come back. Yeah. And 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 it's just how how they're changed. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll get you to come back at some point in the not too distant future and answer some more questions, and we can talk about the world as we do. Um, in the meantime, stay healthy. And in the meantime, everybody out there, if you want to see more of what we're doing, go to the dsrnetwork.com. We narrow up to five podcasts a week and uh, we are grateful to have your involvement in them. And if you like it, go to the part that says membership, sign up and click on that. And we'll be able to continue to compete with the New York times uh, for some time to come. Uh, anyway, thanks a lot, Tom. And um, uh, bye-bye. Take care of yourself. My pleasure. You take care, David. Thanks very much. All right. Bye-bye.